was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. If you're working from home these days, you probably received a few shipments from Amazon. And most of those shipments, of course, come fine. The sellers get paid fine and everything works out fine. But very infrequently, Amazon makes a mistake. And those sellers don't end up getting paid on time. And my next guest, JL Needham, started a business called Valance, which was designed to spot those mistakes and ensure that Amazon sellers get paid properly. Well, as you imagine, right now, Valance is pretty busy. Amazon has announced 100,000 new workers in their fulfillment centers to take into consideration the uptick in demand it has from all of us working from home. And so the business is very relevant right now. But JL in his episode talks a lot about some of the negotiation tips he learned from selling Valance to a company called Veriship. And I want you to pay t- special attention to what strate- M&A guys call and gals called strategic pacing. And strategic pacing is when the other side of a negotiation drags its heels in getting back to you. As the owner of a business and founder of a business, you probably got a lot on the line when you go to sell it. And so when you send an email, every hour that goes by without receiving a response feels like a week. And JL does a tremendous job of describing that and gives you some tips and tricks for how to avoid negotiating with yourself and looking too desperate in the process of getting a reaction from the other side. It's just one of many tips and tricks JL shares in this episode. Enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with JL Needham. JL Needham, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey there. So what does the JL stand for? John Lewis. It's the name nice. my, mom, my mom calls me and professionally I go by JL. There's a very famous shopping uh, yes. biz, business company, whatever, in, in, in the UK, in the UK yeah. called John Lewis. Yep. I like JL. It's, it's got a good ring to it. It feels sort of like a, I don't know, like a famous author. I'm thinking of J.K. Rowling or something like that. It's the result yeah, but, of um, the name John being so common. I joined yeah. um, an employer uh, 20 years ago, and there were two Johns in the team, and so I was told by my boss to pick a new name. And so, 
It's great. We, we might be the same vintage. Like when I was growing up, I was born in 71 and everybody had the name John. Like I had like four Johns in my class. So yep. there you go. Well, it's great to meet you, JL. And I want to hear about this company, Valence. So how did this company start? What, tell, just describe the business problem you were trying to solve. Sure. Uh, so Valence uh, is a auditor for Amazon sellers, um, an increasing share of, of our economy, as you uh, know, has moved to the Amazon ecosystem and there uh, hundreds of thousands of businesses sell their products. And in doing so, Amazon can make mistakes in how they handle the inventory that moves through their fulfillment center network. And when that happens, uh, a seller can be out hundred dollars, thousand, even 10,000. And without knowing, um, without the know-how, they can't get that money back. And that's the, the solution that Valence has brought to the table, which is identifying, tracking those errors Amazon makes, and then uh, persuading Amazon to give the money that's owed to the, the seller. So that's the problem that we solved. But we weren't the first to solve it. We're a Me Too business. Um, others innovated and created this years before we got into the game. But we knowingly said, hey, we could do this better. We could do this for a particular type of seller. And that's how we got started. What was the unique angle you wanted to bring to it? Well, we saw, um, so Valence was spun off of a larger business known as Buyboxer that I've been involved in building for some years. And we, we saw that the ecosystem, the Amazon ecosystem was moving more toward brands selling direct to Amazon shoppers. It's the kind of the, the direct to consumer D2C phenomenon that's been uh, shaping, reshaping how uh, brands now operate and recognize that uh, brands would value this service even more than a retailer would because they don't have retail operations in their DNA. And that as they were moving into that business model, we'd be there to help them. And so that's what we um, launched to do is to really focus on one type of customer, one that we knew wouldn't be as profitable or as big at the outset, but over time would become more strategically valuable. And that, that proved to be the case. So if, if I'm like a I'm thinking of the cosmetic company Kiehl's. Are you familiar with Kiehl's? Yeah, sure. So if I'm a Kiehl's, I believe they sell on Amazon as an Amazon seller. They're not, it's a Kiehl's branded product mm -hmm. that they sell as an Amazon seller to Amazon. Is that the kind of brand that you would, you would work with? Yes. Um, actually, your most recent uh, guest, uh, Spy Optics, the CEO of that company, they're a yeah. client of, of Valence. And so they operate on Amazon like um, other brands such as such that they are selling directly to the consumer. They do that by putting their inventory into the Amazon fulfillment centers uh, through the, uh, the fulfillment by Amazon or FBA program. And that's how the errors occur. So they're entrusting this inventory, Amazon's managing it. Um, Amazon has a very large operation, robots and humans running around doing things and stuff goes wrong. Fortunately, Amazon documents what goes wrong and thus we are able to isolate the error uh, place a value on it and then persuade Amazon to reimburse for the year. I, I'm still like fuzzy. Like I sort of conceptually get it, but yeah. I, I getting into the weeds of it, it must be very difficult to, to track all this stuff. Like how, like, and why doesn't Amazon do it? Why do they need a third party? You know what I mean? Well, they do do it. They actually do automatically reimburse for some of their errors. But if you, as the seller, want to get all the money sold to you, you have to um, you know, have an auditor. You have to have someone who comes in and looks for these um, smaller errors or the bigger systemic ones that uh, Amazon itself doesn't recognize and then make the request for it based on you know a dollar amount with documentation, uh, all the rest. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. When you ship 
products into the Amazon Fulfillment Center network. Again, world's largest operation of its kind, stuff can go wrong. Uh, one box on top of a stack can go missing. Uh, the robot can open the box and count 22 units rather than 24, and each of those errors accumulate and become meaningful. Another example is there are, we've identified eight different ways that Amazon can mishandle return. So when a shopper receives a product, doesn't like it, sends it back, eight ways that Amazon's um, uh, staff can incorrectly process that return. And that should not be at the cost of the seller. That should be Amazon's uh, cost that they've incurred by not doing it right. And so we, we uh, track that and then take care of it. I'm guessing you're not on Jeff Bezos's Christmas card list. Well, no, <laughs> we don't. We don't improve their. We don't improve their margins. At the same time, uh, we are a developer in their community. Uh, we, you know, we're creating value for their sellers, and to the extent that their sellers feel more confident about investing in their Amazon sales channel because they have an auditor backing them and catching errors, the more likely they are to then, you know, grow that that size of their business or that side of their business, and thus Amazon does win. So, they don't uh, necessarily make our work easier but they do make it possible by virtue of the reporting that we tap into, they provide to, to perform the, the auditing. And you raise a good point. If the whole system is more transparent, more effective, it, it does improve the health in the long run of, of the entire ecosystem. That's right, yeah. So I, my background is uh, big tech. I worked for Google for close to a decade. I've been working in the Amazon arena for um, about 10 years now, worked for Adobe uh, indirectly for a bit. And so big tech thinks this way. They think uh, we need to feed our ecosystem. We need to empower everyone, even if they're not necessarily uh, friendly, but we still have to do it. Conversely, uh, so the company that acquired Valence, we'll talk more about that, uh, does auditing for FedEx and UPS. And we don't see the same kind of outlook there, the same posture. It's more of a oppositional posture by, the, by these carriers. Uh, they're not they're not tech companies by by DNA, and so that's why Valence was able to develop within Amazon because we have that access to the recording that Amazon provides. Uh, that's that makes so much sense. So, what's the business model like? How do you get paid? Commission. Uh, so every hundred dollars we bring back, we invoice for say twenty five. It's a, a negotiated commission level uh, with larger uh, clients, but for a standard client, it's twenty five percent, and uh, generally everyone. You just embraces it. They think that's fair. And we didn't have this money before. We'll give you. It's kind of found money, right? Exactly. Yeah. Makes sense. So how, how big did you get this business before you decided it was time to sell? Well, we, we were getting bigger. Let's say we were, we were uh, fulfilling our potential. Uh, the number that is most impressive is we were uh, close to a billion dollars in annual Amazon sales managed across a hundred, hundreds of clients. And had about uh, 12, 13 people on staff and all, all based here in, in the U.S., um, in, in Utah, where we were uh, formed. And since then, since the acquisition, uh, we've, we've shot right past that, that um, billion dollar mark and are moving toward the second billion. And it's going to be uh, upward from there. So if I'm Spy Optic and I, and I move $100 million of inventory into the Amazon Fulfillment Centers, that would be considered $100 million of of of, uh, what did you call it? Distribution? Sales. Or, yeah. yeah sales. That's, sales. that's the math. Yeah. So they're, they're doing some, um, you know, tens of millions a year on Amazon. So yes, we manage, um, that volume that fits into that, that number I quoted. Got it. And, and a portion of that would be, um, stuff that goes missing, et cetera. And that's the yep. stuff that you would recover. Got it. That's right. That makes yep. sense. And so what triggered your decide, decision to sell this business? So I've been reflecting uh, on that question and 
if you look at the story of the company from today's vantage point, it looks very formulaic, like the whole thing was conceived to do exactly what it did. In the moment, it was you know more chaotic, uh, but it was me deciding three years ago, roughly, uh, to take an opportunity to hire four grad students at the University of Utah in an entrepreneurship program. They were all doing MBAs um, related to entrepreneurship um, to validate three different business ideas. So I've been working in the Amazon arena for a while, part of a larger company that's um, historically the largest Amazon seller by product assortment in the um, Amazon program. I was describing uh, what, what you know is prime on the, on the, on the shopper side. And I developed three ideas, three things that I thought we could do, um, two of which were me too, like someone else had already done them. I just thought we could do this better. And so I took these three ideas to the grad students and said, validate, you know, do the analysis, tell me which of these opportunities is the most compelling, how we would pursue it. And one of those three was the business that became Valence. And so it was very, you know, laboratory experiment, like, you know, kind of thoughtfully conceived. It wasn't um, other businesses I've been part of, or, you know, much more kind of out of nowhere, but this was very uh, orchestrated. How did you pay the MBA students? Uh, a scholarship. They all got a, a, a you know addition to their their tuition money, so to speak, for the two semesters. And then, and this was the um, major kind of breakthrough that that represented. Uh, one of the four proved to be very capable. He was the one who actually validated the valence business model. And when it was time to run with the business, uh, he was the logical choice to run the, to, to be the general manager. So I, I hired him, uh, Jason Spar, and he then ran the business, um, you know, as captain for the two plus years that followed before the acquisition. Fascinating. I'm really loving the fact. That, do you work with the university already? Like, did you have a pre-existing relationship with them, or how did you? Um, no, I got a tip of- from an entrepreneur friend. Um, this is the you know a, a sidebar. Uh, it's so important to develop. Uh, a network among other entrepreneurs, even if you don't fit in the same industry segment, this, this guy works in like medical. Uh, he just, you know, we were chatting and he gave me this tip that this program had an opening and, you know, I could fill it. I could uh, bring um, some money and, and get access to these students. And that's where it all came from. Fascinating. And so that's how you hired or, or validated the idea, yep. but it doesn't answer the specific question about what triggered your decision to sell it. Right. Okay. So we were uh, about two years into growing the business. We'd um, achieved strong fit um, with the target clients. Uh, we were winning um, business um, and investing aggressively in, in our software development and staffing our operations team that do that interaction with Amazon. And uh, but cash flow was a challenge. Uh, Amazon had gotten kind of in the way of the of the revenue projection we'd made on which we'd based some investments in people. And that led to me and Jason agreeing, okay, let's go get funding. It's time to go to an initial round. And we were uh, just in the process of having initial conversations with VC types and building our deck and struggling with that process and kind of wary about how long it would take to get that funding. When out of the blue, we got uh, an overture through LinkedIn from uh, a, a deal sourcer, as I now know her identity to be basically at a private equity company who was just, you know, inquired, would you be interested in selling your company? What is a deal sourcer? So private equity. To be, not to be confused with the deal sourcer, which sounds like a different <laughs> thing. Well, I don't know if that they, they all go by that title, but I've, I've, that's, that's the description um, 
I've now uh, learned of it, which is that private equity companies staff a variety of positions, one of which, and that tends to be a more junior associate level contributor, who just go talk to entrepreneurs all day. They, they, they look for interesting looking companies, they analyze what they can from a distance, and then they make an overture, and that's what happened here. In this case, it was very uh, targeted or calculated in that um, this private equity company owns the company Bearership, which is now the owner of Valence. You know, that's the spoiler of the story here. And um, they, they decided, okay, we need to go acquire an Amazon audit service to match our FedEx and UPS audit services to, to round out our business, to diversify. And so that's why she reached out to us. Awesome. That makes sense. How did you finance the business in the first, you know, before you hired Jason? Who, like, was it self-financed? Did you have investors? Uh, my savings, uh, actually. It was um, largely, uh, we had a bit of uh, cash from other sources, but I was the, the funder of the business and that wasn't so comfortable. You know, I, I, I had savings to tap into. I, I joined Google pre-IPO, so I got um, a boost back, back then. Um, but when we decided to go get funding, it was because I was running out of those, the savings that I could um, comfortably um, dedicate to the business. How did you think through what proportion of your net worth you were willing to invest in Valence? Like, did you have a, a number? How did you come to that number? I think I'd be curious. In particular, yeah. in these times now where you've got a lot of owners who are looking at their, you know, their, their entire net worth saying, oh my gosh, the public markets have just tanked. Right. Um, you know, the, the value of my business is probably down. And, and they're, they're going through all those machinations and calculations. So how did you think it through? Well, as you know, everyone has a different relationship with money and mm -hmm. our, our relationship with money tends to be very conditioned by how we were raised by a, a parent or both parents, how they kind of talked about it and acted. I was raised by an entrepreneur and saw my, my father together with my mother risk a lot of capital a lot of the time um, as we were growing up. And so I had a pretty uh, elevated uh, thermostat reading, you could say, for risk. So I was prepared to risk a, a large share of uh, what I had saved. And that's that, in fact where I was uh, as we were closing in on the deal. Um, but that wouldn't be other people's thermostat setting. You know, others might be <laughs> um, a little more um, moderated. I love that concept of a risk thermostat. So you go to raise money in order to fix this cash flow piece um, and you get this overture. Was, was, did you, like, what was the next step? Did you immediately engage in? Uh, you know, like an LOI, a confidentiality agreement with this, this private equity group, or did you shop it more widely? So here's the other side of the story that, again, in hindsight, makes it all look like it was kind of planned uh, to happen. Uh, not too many months into building Valence, I went to a trade show for e-commerce uh, service providers, uh, Shop Talk, and there I checked out everyone uh, that was doing stuff comparable to what we were doing and other parties and bumped into a business called Veroship and was very impressed by a lot of what I saw. They were like Valence auditors for e-commerce and they were though much more mature than us, um, that was evident. And the guy I spoke to there pitched me for a good 30 minutes on their business, not knowing who he was talking to. Like I was kind of a competitor, but not really. I was in a different you know, segment, but doing the same thing. And it just so kind of uh, swept me off my feet. And for the next year to two, as we were building Valence, every time I wondered what we do next or what, you know, what's our next move or what we want to be when we grow up, I would look at this company, Veriship, and just kind of study how they were doing things. And, and um, you know, it, it was very inspiring, actually, to see what we could become. 
And so when this overture came through LinkedIn from the private equity firm behind uh, Veriship, uh, Summit Partners is their name. And thereafter, within like a day, I think it was a, we got a calendar invitation to a call with this person. And then we saw a Veriship email address on them. We're like, oh my word, like this is exactly what we want to talk to. So it was a, a, at that point, we, they'd already sold us. Like we didn't have to say anything. Now we didn't, of course, make that declaration. We played poker face as you would expect, but uh, we knew there would be a, a high potential for a deal to be good for both parties once that um, became evident. How do you play poker face without seeming standoffish? Yeah, um, I think what you do, what, what I, uh, I did in, in two critical initial conversations, uh, one over the phone, one in person, uh, the, the CEO of Veriship uh, flew out very soon after our, our first conversation to meet, was um, just try to, I guess, project uh, confidence, obviously, but also just knowledge uh, that you like you that you know your your stuff um, and that you know you're going as well. Um, you want to just be the sort of person, sort of team that another party wants to be with, if, if you will. And so I did a lot of talking about how we see broader e-commerce trends, um, how we are managing our risk with an Amazon as a you know single source of revenue, and and that seemed to just click or flip the switch so that within the second conversation, the CEO said basically, hey, we want to buy you, so let's figure this out. How did you allay their concerns that you were so deeply dependent on Amazon as, as, as your source of revenue? Uh, by virtue of the fact that they, uh, Veriship, were in and still are so dependent on FedEx and UPS revenue from a similar business model. So for them, this was a diversification move. And it was also for us, you know, they, we would be adding diversity to them. So that was more of a plus than a minus uh, for us. The minus for us was that we were just a lot smaller than them in scale. And, and the revenue we were generating uh, was not so meaningful compared to the value of our technology and the, and the price we were placing on that technology. This is, and I don't mean this to sound pejorative in the way I'm asking the question, but I'm, I'm, I think every listener to this podcast, many listeners to this podcast would, would be interested in the answer. You're a, a 12 employee company as mm-hmm. you get approached and here the, this big hotshot CEO from Veriship, private equity backed company, much bigger, much more mature than yours. How did you practically handle the fact that there were only 12 employees? Like, did you hide it? Did you go to a hotel? Did you invite them right in to see the size of your operation? Like, did, do you know what I'm asking? Like, did you yeah. feel squeamish at all about being only 12 employees? And I'm not suggesting that's small, but it's, it's, I think some people might feel a bit, a bit uneasy about letting people see underneath the covers like that. Yeah, well, there, there was definitely some insecurity to it. Uh, just to add to your, your um, storytelling here, the, the CEO was actually the former uh, COO of TD Ameritrade, a guy <laughs> who has been running very large organizations. And he, yeah. Um, so he, yeah. And, and he carried it. Like he, he carries it. He's a very uh, charismatic and knows what he's doing. Gravitas. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Exactly. So, uh, well, we happened to be in a, a a Regis uh, office setting. That's where, where, where ah, this right. was. We're, we're, we were then and still are today an entirely remote um, team. So we were um, we were pandemic prepared um, at that time. <laughs> um, and but we did have a temporary place where we met and we arranged for a conference room and we wound up having to squeeze into one room at one point and it was a little uncomfortable to have the CTO and CEO you know with us there. Um, but they, they, I think they saw us for who we were um, and the talent we, we represented. Um, they could tell right away that our tech was for real. Our CTO is um, 
just sharp. He's been in the Amazon space for a long time. He's also my brother. So I have the uh, advantage of a, you know, a trust based relationship there. And they could see that in him, their, their CTO that is connected with the CTO of Valence right off and the CEO and I, you know, we, we, we gelled. So yeah. It, but that was a little, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. That was a little scary though. I have to say like to the, you know, we were, we were prepared in every way we could be for, for the visit, knowing the importance of the, the impression we'd make. How did you stick handle the equity piece of things with your brother? Yeah. So um, a book I read twice um, during the first year of building Valence uh, that's uh, one I recommend to, to your listeners um, is Peter Thiel's Zero to One. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Thiel, co-founder of PayPal. Um, it, it talks, um, I mean, he, he offers a lot of um, principles for um, kind of almost natural laws um, that, by which you run a startup or you build a company. One of which is that you, you pay very close attention to the degree to which a contributor, especially a manager contributor, is prepared to take equity versus uh, near-term compensation, otherwise known as a salary. Everyone has to pay the bills, of course, but I think it's a really valuable conversation to have. And I've almost learned to just kind of push people. Would you consider this, you know, like lowering your salary, this amount for that much equity? Um, Not because it's necessarily that important for the budget to work for the compensation budget, but just to see where people are on their commitment to what you're building. So that's a backdrop to say um, it was a bit tricky to ensure that uh, all the co-founders, there were five of us in the end um, had a a share of the equity that was uh, proportionate to their, their contribution and, and how much salary they were or weren't taking, but we got it right. Um, in the end, it was, yeah. Um, challenging, but we got it right. So I'm assuming your brother is one of the co-founders. Uh, actually uh, two brothers who are co-founders. Um, these, wow. are the, these are the two with whom I was, um, building and I'm still, um, associated with, uh, the buy boxer business that spun off Valence. So let me, let me try to get underneath this. And again, if I'm getting too personal, just tell me where no. to go. The, so I'm assuming you all said, you, you tried to say, okay, like here's a market rate salary for what I do. And, and I'm willing to give up, you know, 40% of that salary in return for, you know, what we agree is this, this value in equity. And another brother might say, well, I'm only willing to give up 20% of that because I've got a family and kids. Like, is that the kind of conversation you guys had? Uh, yes, with with the brothers, it was simpler because uh, we were being salaried by the other entity, and so mm-hmm. it was more of a we're we're contributing this technology, we're contributing a bit of my time. Therefore, this is the reward we should get back as co-owners of the larger entity. For the other two co-founders who were operators, there was a function of um, market salary for you would be X, but since you're taking Y, we're going to offer you Z in additional equity. Got it. Got it. Which we think will be worth two, three, four X at some point down the future. Is that yeah. the math? You, you tell that story hoping it's true. Um, and they, they believe it, hoping it's true. And, and then on occasion, it actually works out and as it has what, here. And so what multiple of X do you think you were able to deliver for those, those co-founders oh. of what they gave up? Yeah. Um, hmm, I've thought that, about that math. Uh, so Jason Spar, the, the general manager of Valence, um, um, would be able to give that number right away because he's a, he's a great quantitative analyst. Hmm. Um, I would say it was um, at least four to six times, I'm thinking, um, what they gave That's up. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. Good for you. Good for you. So, so let's get into the transaction itself. So you're, uh, you're approached by the private equity group. You get into the 
the conversation. It turns out it's Vereship behind the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the screen. What next? Did they come to, like, how did you guys come up with the terms? Did they come to you with a term sheet? Did you propose sort of something? So there were, there was a series of back and forth, uh, communications, um, in writing and over the phone, uh, to get to a letter of intent. Um, and, and then once that letter of intent arrived then there was further and it was, this was the challenging dynamic we faced. Uh, the, the C, the CFO of Airship, um, is a very capable quantitative type quant, as is uh, Jason, as I mentioned, uh, Valence's general manager. And the two of them would go off on a track of analyzing revenue and uh, lifetime value of clients and and all that, um, that would lead to certain kind of conclusions. While the CEO and I were talking more strategy and the qualitative value of what we were offering, how it would position Veriship to do X and Y that they couldn't do. And in the end, the valuation was not so attractive. It was just based on the hard numbers. It was much more attractive to us. And, and we thought it would be kind of uh, more inspiring to them to do the deal if we could do the, the, the qualitative kind of based valuation. And so there was a there was tug of war throughout. And, you know, the warning I would offer is that anytime you have those quants in the circle, they're going to want to pull it into like a very hardcore kind of conventional financial analysis, which says this company's worth, you know, seven figures of this amount. Um, whereas if you do a different analysis, you can come to a completely different conclusion. And there's probably a case, um, I, um, in general to do a bit of both. Um, and the answer then is to find the right ratio of the two of quantitative to qualitative. But at some point, even your qualitative discussions have to find their way into being quantitative, right? Like they've got to come up with a number at some point. How did yeah. you guys, how, how, while spinning this kind of qualitative narrative, how did you take that to like, to into like, here's what the valence is worth as a result of that, that narrative? Yeah. So we, we did um, some um, revenue forecasts for what could come if we were to put the valence business on the platform that, that is Veriship. We did some uh, projections of what we could do with uh, two different additional services that we could roll out as part of the, the acquisition, well, post-acquisition through, through the integration process. And with that, we were able to tell a story in which we were projecting a really large number. So you're, to your point, yes. So the qualitative has to then become somewhat quantitative, and we did do that. Um, but, but again, the, the, the quants in the circle would want to focus on today and what's like actually happening now versus what we could do in a speculative, speculative way in the future. Fantastic. So it's a, it's a really good point. So your, uh, your quants are going to look historically like this is the business today, whereas you're trying to get, get everybody focused on here's what the future is. Here's what the strategic sort of value of the two together is. Yep. What did you, did you have a sense of, of what the business was worth either on sort of a multiple of, I mean, I'm assuming it's a multiple of revenue that you value a company like that on. Yes, that's right. Or on um, revenue or on, on EBITDA, so the kind of net income. Um, yep. uh, and both were used in the valuation process here, as were other uh, factors. Candidly, though, when, when the LOI was on the way from the other party, I had no idea what the number was going to be. I really was just like, you know, we were, we were hoping for X and we were um, preparing for Y and it wound up... Um, Closer to why, but still, you know, where we, where we thought it was workable. Um, we did tell them what we thought the company was worth at the outset. 
And we, we had the benefit of being able to say, hey, we're in the middle of a funding round. We've already done the initial analysis. It tells us that we're worth X to Y. And we've had that validated by some VCs. So make your offer. You know, so what, we, we, we were kind of firm about that to start. What, what did you, again, we, I, I don't think you've shared your revenue or EBITDA. So it would be curious, I'd be curious to know sort of what you thought based on the funding round, your multiple of revenue would have been on that, on that raise. Yeah, let's see. Let me think. Trying to remember. Um, the valuation we came to in preparing for the uh, the venture funding round was was actually a lot less tied to revenue. It was more more tied to growth potential, and but I, I think we we're looking at a valuation of eight to ten times. Uh, future EBITDA. That's I think how we were structuring it because we were yet to be, we weren't, um, we basically broke even in the year 2018. And so we were saying, okay, here we are break even. Now we can grow at this pace. And if we had funding, we could grow at that pace and we would generate this much in EBITDA. Therefore eight to 10 times that I think was something like that in our model. Wow. Interesting. And so how did that play out when you got the, the letter of intent? It was lower than, than you had hoped. Yeah, um, it, but it was still in range. Like it was in the in the span we were kind of envisioning. Um, well, what ensued was a more uh, tense negotiation, where tense because I didn't know whether they would just walk away on us. Like you know, they they had other options. They had other things going on. Uh, the CEO was was relatively new to the role, and was clearly focusing on you know other uh, priorities, um, and. You know, two, two things really uh, factored in that process. I've been reflecting on it. One is that I, I took advantage of two unfair advantages I have. That's another concept that you encounter in uh, Peter Thiel's book is unfair advantages. Uh, every business has one or more uh, versus other competitors. Um, in my case, I, I trained to be a book editor and you know, I've worked a lot with the written word and communication. And so I did a lot of writing about um, our argument for the deal value. Um, in, re in response to what I was getting from the other party. And that helped me refine the thinking and recognize that we were wrong about this and right about this and to really double down on what, what was, uh, we thought, fundamental to the deal. So there was a lot of written communication that we did. And I think, and later I heard from the CEO, like that was very persuasive to him to have that in front of him and to be able to pass it along to the private equity company and kind of you know, make the argument. Um, the other unfair advantage I had was that my partner is a professor of um, business management at a university, and she, she's taught negotiation for a decade. And so at every turn, I'd say, okay, what about this and that? And she would help me kind of go through the scenario. Um, and so again, I, I'm sure all your listeners have certain things they can bring to this process that others may not have, and you just need to really uh, lean on that and um, believe in it. What was the best negotiation tip you got from your partner? Hmm. Oh, many. Um, we spent a lot of time psychoanalyzing the CEO and wondering what would inspire, like here again, a, a guy who's seen um, many big deals. This was a small deal, very small compared to what I think he um, managed before. And, and so, but as you hear in, in the world of private equity and, and um, you know, deal making like this, every deal takes roughly the same amount of resources and energy to, to do. Like there's the same kind of experience to it. Um, and so we, we just, uh, she was very helpful in recognizing what he was signaling in a way that I didn't see it. And just, you know, taking very seriously the emotional quality to 
to the experience for both parties. What kind of psychoanalysis was she doing? Like what, what was she seeing? Um, uh, when, when we, there were, there were points when it was feared that they were just going to walk away. Um, I think she helped me recognize that the signal they were sending wasn't actually, you know, disinterest, but was actually, let's say them being, um, poker faced, you know, them like waiting for us to, to make a move. That's my, my best memory of it. But it was especially just, you know, you get really nervous when you have a big deal in front of you that could just disappear. Like, I, I mean, it's, a, it's very hard to sleep. It's very hard to eat. It's very hard to kind of concentrate when this is all there. And so having someone in my case that I could turn to, to remind me, nope, it's fine. Like everything, every, so far, all signals are positive. There's nothing to be freaking out over. Um, there, there was a, a weekend, this, this is embarrassing to share, but a weekend when we were hiking in Southern Utah, going from uh, Grand Staircase Escalante kind of attraction to attraction and supposedly enjoying ourselves when I was waiting for a response to something and it didn't come and it didn't come from the CEO. And by Monday, I talked myself into the fact the deal was gone. It was over. Like he'd walked away on, on us. Turns out he was doing the same thing up in Canada. He was off the grid and just couldn't respond to me because I got, an, I got a text from him the first thing Monday once he was back. And so she helped me make it through that weekend, even though it was, it was tough. I love this stuff, by the way. I think this is great because I think, you know, um, especially when you write with such eloquence and such effort and you put so much thought into writing something persuasive, you send it off and, and the writer in you must have just been craving reaction, right? right. Like you've, you've, you've yep. thought this through in every possible dimension and you send it and all you want is something back and it's crickets. Right. <laughs> How you manage through that. You, you, I, you I just captured it right there. Yep. Yeah. I find it so fascinating uh, that you were able to get through it. Um, how do you discern between strategic silence on the other end of the line? And I don't mean physical phone line. I mean, like, you know, you send something off and it takes them five, 10, 12 days to get back to you versus the deal is, is in fact off the table. Like how would an entrepreneur listening to this try to tease out whether in fact the deal is on life support or if it's just a natural negotiation stance the other side is taking? Well, um, that's a tough question to answer, but what I will offer that you brought to mind, um, because I think every, every organization you're negotiating with is going to behave differently, obviously. Um, but what we did succeed at is taking opportunities to have side communication. There was a point when we weren't hearing from Vership. I was able to connect with uh, the original uh, party that reached out from the private equity company and she gave me a signal that reassured and, and clarified. Uh, there was a point where we would use our law firm to communicate with their law firm to confirm this and that and kind of get, we, we communicate with the CFO on one track. So uh, establishing as many lines of communication as possible, including informal ones. Um, and, and also like just, I mean, texting made such a huge difference to like just keeping rhythm, um, you know, email, you have to do communication around the deal documents by email. That's the only way you can do it. But texting can help you kind of keep the, the heartbeat, you know, hearing it and knowing that you're on track and that this is in the way now can fix this. Um, so multiple lines of communication, I think is the answer there. Love it. So you established a text relationship with the CEO. That's right. Oh, he, he did it with, he's a hardcore texter. So he was just doing that constantly. And I just realized, okay, this is how I, I connect with the guy. So you, you'd, you'd send an email, uh, CCing 60 million people, and then you'd flip a text to him, say, hey, just sent you an email, heads up, it tax, you know, does these three things. 
That's exactly right. And then I would ask um, our GM to you know communicate a detail with the CFO just for, just to find out where the CFO was. You know, it was more of like a, a ruse to see where where they were on that side of things. Got it. Got it. Love it. So how did you? How did it go from there? So you're, you're in the throes of this negotiation. Presumably at some point you signed a letter of intent and, and agreed in, at least in theory on terms. Yeah, well, what I'm describing, the drama I'm describing happened pre LOI post. And then as we were closing in on, on signing the documents, um, there was a, a point at the very end where the deal almost uh, fell apart. Um, and so, you know, the drama kind of came and went over a, six to eight week process. Um, and yeah. What made the deal almost fall apart? Uh, the, the quants got really um, busy with the revenue numbers and weren't impressed by the numbers they saw from uh, a month that just ended in the middle of the deal process. And so we had to kind of revisit the structure. Um, in the end, we had to give up a little bit of the value. Uh, we actually, kept the value, the end, the end deal number stayed, but we had to put more into the earnout structure as a consequence. And that was, that was the kind of outcome for us. Um, How did you end up structuring the deal? I'm assuming there was an earnout component. Like how did you kind of do, do the actual deal itself? Yeah. So if we had been fussy about the structure, like wanting it to all be cash or mostly cash, um, we would not have had a deal. Uh, the company wanted to do a deal that was more, um, stock than, than cash, uh, just to protect their balance sheet for the next uh, adventures for the company. And so we, we, we had to bend that way, we had to bend um, further in that direction. Um, and so in the end, we wound up with a deal that's um, majority stock, um, a meaningful amount of cash, but um, yeah. And the stock is in Veriship or that's in right. private equity? Okay. Yeah, so the, the company that, yep. That, and I should mention that all of us on the team are offered positions at Bearership, and that's where I work today. So we're all there um, helping to build the Amazon business for the company and also now um, helping to build the, uh, the carrier-focused business, the FedEx and UPS business. What was the dynamic among the five co-founders as it relates to valuation? Did, did you agree? Was there major differences in opinion? So uh, the GM, Jason, and I ran most of that process and the others just trusted us to, you know, since everyone had a, a slice of the pie, we were all kind of in it together. Um, I would give per uh, periodic report uh, updates and get reactions, but mostly Jason and I were, and I have to give him credit. Like he, he and I, he was the sounding board to help me think through um, the numbers, whereas my, my partner was helpful on kind of the, the negotiation tactics. That's helpful for sure. Ultimately, if you had it to do over again, what might you do differently? Hmm. Not experience as much drama, but you can only say that in hindsight. I don't, I don't mm -hmm. think there was as much going on on their side as we assumed there was, uh, but we were the, you know, the, the, um, the party that was you know, yearning for the deal in the end. Um, let's see. And consequently would have probably held out for a bigger number and a less uh, demanding earnout performance criteria structure. So we're, we're obligated to deliver pretty interesting results for the company to receive the full, um, this is what an earnout's about. Uh, so they negotiated a really attractive structure for them, I would say. 
And had we felt more confident about the fact that deal was going to happen and, and that we were you know, as attractive as we, uh, I think, were, we were to them in the end, uh, we would have gotten better numbers. Um, happy in the end, but yeah. And as I mentioned um, um, in our side conversation prior, I'm in the process right now of, of um, potentially um, packaging another business for sale. And so I'm going to be more confident and, you know, prepare for the process to go slow and be you know, a bit of a job um, so that, and not give up value as a result of that. Interesting because you've had the experience of the emotional, you know, almost negotiating with yourself at some point if you're, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, it's, so it, it, I wouldn't be too hard on yourself in the sense that this, this is, I mean, you, you put all, most of your life savings in this, right? So this was yeah. a chance to get some Stay of that right. back. Yeah. 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 Whereas I feel, you know, sometimes when you hear about entrepreneurs have sold 10 businesses and this is their 11th, well, no guff, they're <laughs> a little calmer yeah. in the process because it's not 90% of their, or whatever. It's not a huge proportion of their wealth. And they're, you know, this is just another transaction. That's right. Well, good for you. Um, so, so you're now at Veriship. Mm -hmm. And, and you're, you're also doing, um, other things. If people wanted to reach out JL, um, is there a way to do that? Is it, do you want to point them to a website that, um, I'm sure we have lots of Amazon sellers that, uh, that listen to this. Is there somewhere they should go to learn more about Veriship? Yeah. So the Veriship website has a contact form. So they want to learn more about, uh, the Amazon audit service that Veriship offers or the auditing for FedEx and UPS. Um, if they're a very e-commerce centric business, that, that's the place to go. I'm also happy to field questions, um, at, um, you know, through LinkedIn. Um, I get overtures there a lot. In fact, it, it, it's the case that when you sell a company, people notice I've got, received a lot of inquiries from various parties, just interested in learning more. And it's led me to actually reach out to others um, who are in this kind of chapter of their career to, to uh, connect and chat. Um, so yeah, Veriship website or uh, JL Needham on uh, LinkedIn. Fantastic. And you use the initials JL and Needham is N-E-E-D-H-A-M, I believe, correct? That's right. Excellent. Well, JL, it was a pleasure to speak with you today and I, uh, I appreciate you sharing the story. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.